hello. Your QL fandom uncle and auntie are here with giant sunglasses, brown liquor in a flask, a folded $5 bill to slip into your hand when nobody's looking, lukewarm takes, occasional rides on the discourse, deep dives into artistry and industry, and most importantly, simping. Lots of simping. I'm Ben. I'm Nini. And this is The Conversation. About once a season, we plan to swan in and shoot the shit on faves, flops, and trends that we've been noticing in the BL, GL, or QL industry. Between seasons, you can find us typing way too many words on Tumblr. Good evening to the Conversation Nation. I don't know. What are we going to call our listeners, Ben? I don't know. Participants seems wrong. We'll figure it out later. We'll figure something out and maybe y'all could give us some suggestions. Welcome back to the Conversation. And we're into part three of our Vibe Awards, our very important Internet BL Awards for 2022. And part three is our Best in Class Awards. So we'll be talking about the best programs that we saw all year, including two very special programs that we'll be talking about as special class awards. So we are celebratory tonight, since we're doing a best of the best. We have broken out the brown liquor. Ben, Ben, what are you drinking? What do you got? I'm drinking Crown and Coke tonight. Crown and Coke? I haven't had Crown in a minute. And of course, you pulled it fresh out the bag, right? Of course. You Nicely done. Nicely done. I am drinking rum on the rocks in a coffee mug because I am a classy lady. We were having a conversation right before we started about which countries make the best rum. Oh, yeah. I have lots of thoughts on that. But basically, you have to have had a sugarcane industry at some point in order to make good rum. Basically. Yes, basically. And also, pro tip, white rum is not rum. Yeah. Just letting y'all know. (laughs) Just letting the people know. Okay, so... (laughs) Okay, so we've got the brown, we're celebratory, we're here for our best in class. We're going to start with the Girl You Tried Award. And the Girl You Tried Award is for the best show with a good idea but poor execution. This particular category grew out of our desire to talk about shows that, for whatever reason, we did not think were good or lived up to their promise. We didn't want to just not talk about them in any way because these shows have some sort of promise in them and they might become a reference point for other things that the production house might do following up on it. I like to call it personally, and Ben is going to disagree with me here, I call it the Manner of Death Award. Wow! (laughs) All right. Ben disagrees with me entirely. (laughs) I see. We're going to start as enemies tonight (laughs) we're never enemies ben we are always friends you can pick something manner of death is so good (laughs) god i I get it though i get i get why you don't like it but i am extremely partial to it 
Max and Tool are fantastic. Manner of Death is a little much. I really liked everybody in that show. Not a single person misunderstands their character. There was an assignment. Everybody fulfilled the assignment. I will leave it at that. (laughs) Okay, you know, we're talking about 22. We're not talking about 21. (laughs) Okay, all right. So for 2022, our nominees for the Girl You Tried Award, I nominated War of Why, Enchanté, and Ocean Likes Me. So War of Why... Where do I even start? Let's start with the good in Sandwich Eye. Yes. The best in Sandwich Eye. Who made even a small part of War of Why completely worth watching. But I want to go back even before that. Because when I first saw the trailer for War of Why, I was actually quite excited about it. I thought it was going to be this messy, enjoyable, soapy, fun show. And instead, it turned out to be a little preachy, confusing. When I wrote about the show, I said it felt like it was made by somebody who actually really hates BL. That's honestly what really turned me off. Like I was initially excited about the fact that we were going to have four distinct stories and we're going to follow four different couples. And I thought it was going to be a little bit like Love in the Air with couples taking a back burner to each other, but participating in this sort of wider storytelling experience. But that's not what we got. What we got was four different stories of steadily worse thematic thrust. And it was weird watching a show that was critical of BL while simultaneously trying to titillate the BL viewing audience on the exact things that they want as an audience. So it's a show that you feel like is making fun of you, the viewer, while you're watching it. There are some standouts. The first story, New Ship, as messy as it was, gave us Segwichai playing one of the best characters of 2022 in Pan. And we talked a lot about Pan and sang in our actors and ships part of these awards, so I'm not going to belabor the point, but Sang was one of the good parts of War of Why. One of the other good parts of War of Why, I actually found a few things to enjoy in the third story, which is Why Idol. What I enjoyed was the idea of a kid who is queer and is a little femme, what it means for him to try to get into the industry and then through this cutthroat competition show with a lot of strange psychological warfare. It was interesting in that regard, but everything else about the Why Idol thing, if that had been what had been focused on, I would have enjoyed the Why Idol arc a lot more. Unfortunately, the overarching theme of the Why Idol arc was reality TV is bad. I'm over it. I'm over it. I'm not particularly fond of reality TV. I made it through War of Managers. And I really enjoyed what Dome got to do because I do love Dome a lot. And it was fun to see Dome just play an absolutely just 
over-the-top character who got a lot of screen time and got to have a little more depth than some of the one-scene bit characters that we often see Dome playing. Dome was the manager for, I believe his character's name was Gun. Gus. 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 Yes. Gus. Yeah. The War of Managers arc for me, it was so cartoon villain. I could not get into it. It was repetitive. It was mind-numbing. The repetitiveness I... of it was also why I got bored and quit the thing. Also, I really hate reality TV stuff. So as soon as Why Idol started, I was over it. And I was like, I'm done. I'm not watching this. You didn't miss anything by missing Why Idol. Because as much as I found a little something to enjoy in it, overall it wasn't great and then the fourth arc wife was just hot mess express i can't even it was worse than war of managers i hated it but the idea behind war of why was a good idea if it was made by somebody who didn't hate bl hate the bl audience and i'm sorry if you think that that's not how it felt but that's how it felt to me that we were being scolded for enjoying bl it was weird to me because there were so many BL director cameos and talent cameos as well. So I was constantly unsure about how I was supposed to feel about the entire experience. It's a show that I found mostly perplexing. It's not sure what it wanted to say. Did it want to tell us to be gentler? Did it tell us we're terrible? Did it? What did it want to say? I'm not even sure. So for that, it was one of my nominees for the Girl You Tried Award. The second of my nominees was Enchanté, and I was so mad to have to put Enchanté on this list because I did not originally mark Enchanté as one of the shows that I was going to watch in 2022. In fact, when Bad Buddy was over and everybody was moving on to Enchanté, I staunchly refused to watch it. And then I can't even remember why I started watching it. But once I did, the beginning of Enchanté and the first section of understanding who Ak and Theo are and who they are to each other is actually quite good. Book playing this sort of spoiled prince character and Ak being the kind of, oh, he's so darling, isn't he? character who's in love with him anyway i actually quite liked that dynamic where it fell down is when they started bringing in all the ambassadors i could care less about this harem of potential enchantees and all the reasons that they were trying to get next to theo i got so bored with the ambassadors when it was just force and book being ak and theo and all of the stuff around that it was great once you started getting into the ambassadors, all these other characters, I think it was Fluke Win played one, Ao pay- played one. Luke who else, played one. I did not like the ambassadors. I was not interested in anything that they were doing. When they came on screen, I rolled my eyes. It's the usual it was... problem we have with those kind of characters because they don't pose a real threat in the narrative. And so introducing them feels more tedious than anything because we know that it's act the whole time. And then beyond them being annoying, there was the whole thing with Fluke, Pusit's character being with like the, the soccer teacher. That was not what I was here for. And I, I know this is probably controversial because some of the people loved it, but I did not like the end bit that has 
Ack working super hard to get to Paris to be with Theo because why doesn't Theo just get him a ticket? I will say Force and Book were not the problem in Enchante. That was my biggest thing when I was criticizing some of the things towards the end. I really, truly enjoyed Force and Book's very specific dynamic because they are the crackhead duo that GMMTV has needed to fill out the ranks that we lost for a while. When Tay and Nui stopped being that couple, we needed someone to step into those shoes. They did immediately with great gusto. And I really love them for it. So I'm excited to see them again this year. So my third nominee for the Girl You Tried Award was Ocean Likes Me. I don't think I like it when Korea tries to do Japan. I don't think that they quite get it. And it's not that Ocean Likes Me is a Japanese story, but the way that it's filmed, the quirkiness of the story, it felt very Japanese to me. And I don't think that's Korea's strong suit. I watched Osha Likes Me and the whole time I'm going, this is in the wrong language. Why is this in Korean? This should be in Japanese. I can't really describe the feeling I got from Ocean Likes Me other than this is ridiculous. Korea can do ridiculous, but not this kind of ridiculous. It fell flat for me. I did not like it. I nominated Ocean Likes Me, Vice Versa, and Senpai, This Can't Be Love. So I'll talk about Ocean Likes Me since you you just finished up on that. My biggest problem with Ocean Likes Me is that it feels as if there were a bunch of goals written out on a board of check boxes they wanted to hit to make sure that it got market penetration to reach the intended audience. So they brought Hungi Chan back after Where Your Eyes Linger, and he continues to give really solid BL performances. And they have him playing an especially moody character, which I think he actually has a great face for because his eyes look so tired sometimes. And then they bring out Holland, who's the most enjoyable weaponized twink out of Korea to watch on a regular basis. And I appreciate Holland so much. And there's just a bunch in the show that never seems to come together correctly. And I'm mostly frustrated when I watch it again, because I don't know why anyone is doing what they're doing. And that's particularly frustrating for me because Korea is very good at getting a lot of humanity out of very familiar character tropes. And so it was noteworthy to me in Ocean Likes Me that I wasn't entirely certain why anyone was present and doing what they were doing. And it's fundamentally frustrating because like Nini says that it feels very Japanese because the Japanese do contemplative melancholy extremely well. I have a lot of positive things to say about some of the Japanese melancholy this year. But (laughs) the dynamics in Ocean Likes Me don't come together. And there are a lot of things that you like as individual pieces, but as a whole, they don't feel fully baked. And it stands out in terms of why we would bring it up, because you feel the need to think about it still. I feel such consternation about this show, because I feel like I want to like it, but I can't, because there's just a lot of little things that are off, and it kind of topples. You can feel they were reaching for. Let's talk about two shows that I had much more negative feelings for. 
Yikes. I did not like vice versa. Vice versa was bad. I'm going to just be straightforward about how I feel about this. I don't like Jitty Rain's affection for having characters with huge reasons to be devoted to another character actively withholding critical information from those characters for the whole show. I was frustrated with the ethical issues and vice versa, because you've taken over someone else's life and you're controlling their body. And I feel like the golden rule applies, like do unto others as you would have done unto you. And I was so frustrated watching Jimmy's character, I think his name is Pun, not take care of Nanon's character's body. It was so irritating to watch the whole time for that regard. And I'm like, why doesn't he just tell him this? Because they, the guy he claims to love wants to go home and he won't help him go home. And that felt so selfish. And I'm struggling to enjoy this character because of this. And then when we finally get back to the main universe, he gets back to his room and Ohm's character has totally trashed his life. And so we watched him have to rebuild his life again. And I was so frustrated while watching it. And it's particularly annoying because I think overall the performances are really solid. And the ideas that they were exploring along the way actually come through incredibly legibly. Like there's this whole notion about what's the role of creation, particularly under a capitalist construct where you have to sell your ideas to an audience to get them to enjoy it so you can explore them. What, are the, what is the relationship that you build with your creative team along the way? And what happens when you maybe can't succeed with the group of people that you most want to succeed with? And there's this whole notion about how does success impact people's lives and how that can make some people really lonely to be super successful without really having anyone to share it with. And I'm like, these things are all good. There's good ideas about the nature of filmmaking and the role of color and storytelling with the whole notion that we have a colorist. But god damn, was that show frustrating. Also, a very lovely fan who I did not have handy to credit them appropriately did the math and proved that the show was 16% ads. So thank you, Vice Versa, for funding the eclipse. Yeah, every time you talk about Vice Versa, I realize that what I think it is about is probably not what it's about. I have not watched it, full disclosure. <laughs> Finally, senpai, this can't be love. Now, when Japan is good, they are very good. When Japan is bad, it is so forgettable that we just never talk about it. When Japan is annoying, it's hard to really get out of your brain. And senpai, this can't be love, is the unfortunate show that becomes annoying. MBS did this thing constantly over the last year of their year of BL, where we have a dubious uh, consent kiss very early on in around episode one or two, so that the girlies will go on Tumblr and Twitter and make all sorts of gift sets and post on TikTok about, look at this kiss, look at this kiss, everybody sign up. But then they don't really deliver with a really satisfying one later on, except for Eternal Yesterday. It's worse in Senpai, because we have this thing where one character has this long-term devotion for another character, and we never really unpack that. We don't really see them really discuss their relationship. And most annoyingly, when they are trying to grow professionally and have to be physically apart for a year and a half, two years, 
One of them has to go to Vancouver. Apparently, these guys don't talk to each other for a year and a half, and they are super awkward when they get back together. And this was just so disappointing. They tried to do this thing where once they come out of a digital remote meeting with some other clients, they're still chatting in the sort of like meeting booths with each other. And that would have landed if they had shown a strong indication that they had maintained contact in that time apart and were just awkward when they were back together because there's a great deal of anticipation between them. And again, with this show, the chemistry also felt slightly off. Like the actors never really found an equilibrium with each other. And it just ends up being probably the most disappointing Japanese BL of the year. Like I often complain about Mr. Unlucky has no choice but to kiss, not living up to its name. But Senpai ended up irritating me way more. And it's frustrating because we wanted a workplace BL from MBS because Sherry Magic was so good. We were happy to see another one again because a bunch of the early offerings from MBS were college high school so we're super excited to see uh, a, a workplace one and it just was kind of a flop after some deliberation not a great deal because we agreed on one and the one that we agreed on was ocean likes me so a dubious honor but ocean likes me wins the 2022 girl you tried award for a good idea poor execution next category then best gl so there were a lot of korean small-scale gls that came out this year and unfortunately i did not watch all of them due to mild frustrations i was having with the incredibly short format from korea and the youtube release schedules so i put four shows on this list and i Two of them are from Korea. One of them is from Japan and one is from the Philippines. So we have She Makes My Heart Flutter from Korea. Our Relationship Ended Before It Began, also from Korea. Sleep With Me from the Philippines. And She Loves to Cook and She Loves to Eat. In 2023, it looks like there's going to be a lot more GL to talk about. So I'm very excited about that. We might have more than one category next year for GL. But the only one that I was able to watch was Sleep With Me. And I have thoughts because I think Ben and I have different views on Sleep With Me. Oh, God, we'll talk about Sleep With Me last then. I'm talking about the good in here first. So I did not really enjoy our relationship ended before it began. I liked that we had a very butch character as the love interest in this one, but it ends up being way too chaste, even by Korean standards for me. And it ends up just sort of irritating me as a result. I liked the fact that they were both working in a, in like a coffee shop together. And I liked the confusion that the, that the nominally straight girl works through very quickly. Korea did that very well this year, but mm, didn't work. She Makes My Heart Flutter, though, was actually really, really good. It basically plays like an hour and four minute movie. And they did release a movie cut of it on YouTube. And it ends up being really fun because it's about a woman's bar that's trying to remain under the radar. Like The owner doesn't really want to become especially noteworthy because she's trying to protect the identities and the privacy of the women who come there. And they only serve women in this bar. And it's about her... And her niece, who ends up 
working at the bar because they didn't know about each other at first and how they end up bonding more. And then there's a really excellent play out of the friction between young queer people and older queer people where like older queer people who are like my age and Nini's age, some of us might be more keen on our privacy and not really broadcasting what we're up to, to protect ourselves and some of the people we care about from public scrutiny. But a lot of the young queer people do not have the shame and fear we grew up with. And so they're very big on getting as many people into the room as possible. And the tension about that is played out really well. And some of the complexities about the way women love each other and how they sometimes hurt each other in love plays out incredibly well over a surprisingly short runtime. It's a really, really lovely little production. From Japan, I noted she loves to cook and she loves to eat. And Nini can attest to you all that I have a deep and undying love of what did you eat yesterday. And this show is The Lesbian Little Sister. It is about a woman who is a temp employee at some sort of office environment. But on her free time, she likes to cook food and post it on socials. But she has a relatively small appetite and is frustrated that she can't really make the types of meals she'd prefer to make and show off because she's never going to finish it all and she doesn't want to waste food. She notices a taller, bigger woman in the elevator to her apartment complex one day coming home with a massive order from like the Japanese equivalent of KFC, it felt like. It probably was actually KFC. They seem to be really big on funding queer media in Southeast Asia right now. And... She asks about who's all the food for, and she says, oh, it's just for me. And inspired one evening, she invites her neighbor to come eat some food with her when she's upset and makes too much food. And their relationship begins to grow out of the fact that her neighbor really loves food and likes large portions, and she gets to watch somebody enjoy her food. And it is an absolute delight. And I really hope NHK comes back next year and continues this because it feels incomplete. And it's the only reason I did not mark it as the winner for GL this year, because it feels like we stopped in the middle. So please tell the people how you feel about Sleep With Me. So the premise of Sleep With Me is that one of the characters has a sleep disorder. That's Luna, where she can't sleep at night. She can only sleep in the day. When we meet her, this is a source of consternation for her. She's built a life in the night, but it depresses her. She's utterly depressed because the life that she wants to live, she can't live at night. She wants to have a certain kind of education and a certain kind of job. And those kinds of things aren't night people jobs and night people education. So she is depressed and she has a neighborhood convenience store that she goes to where this girl works the night shift and she is listening to a radio contest and she wins something on this radio contest. So she asks Luna because she's working. She can't go now. If she can go and pick up the prize for her. The DJ who is running the radio contest, she is in a wheelchair And she works at the radio station as a DJ on the night shift. It's a job that she enjoys and it's one that she could get. And it's one that makes the necessary accommodations for her. 
and she's created sort of this life in the night. She doesn't have to do it, but she has figured out a way to enjoy her nightlife. So Luna goes to the radio station to pick up this prize for the girl who works in the convenience store, and she runs into the DJ, and it's instant attraction. The story then follows their relationship, not in detail, sort of picks some points along their relationship for, to kind of check in on them. And then there's this whole thing where the radio station sh- shuts down. So Harry loses her job, but Harry has other options, basically. She can go to work in the day. She has a degree. She has experience. She can get other jobs. However, she faces discrimination when she goes looking for other jobs. So she actually ends up working with her ex-girlfriend at a job that she's really good at, but she's doing this job in the day. So this becomes a source of tension and friction between Harry and Luna. And eventually they break up because Luna is depressed and insecure. And the more Harry's life moves into the day, the more she's certain that she and Harry can't be together. Eventually they get back together and everybody's happy at the end. I liked this but not as much as Ben did. And the reason that I have reservations about this were I felt like there were big gaps in terms of the timeline of the relationship. And it's not necessarily that I need to see everything that happens. One of my favorite BLs is Life Senju Nobukura, and that's a similar kind of story where we drop in on these characters with huge gaps in between. In Sleep With Me, I feel like it's a bit of a whiplash because when the first time there's a gap and then you drop in on the characters again, first of all, you don't really understand that there was a gap until you're hearing the characters talking to each other and realize that they've gone from meeting each other to being in a fairly serious relationship. And you're like, but wait, but when did this happen? It feels like there are things missing. I couldn't follow the emotional journey of the characters, in other words. It was good. I liked the acting. I liked the idea of it, what they were trying to portray. But I felt like there were things missing, important emotional moments that meant that I couldn't follow the emotional journey without a lot of work. I will say that I can appreciate that you have to do some emotional work for the show to keep up with it. However. For me, I think what worked for me is because I'm so familiar with disability narratives and queer narratives, I really like the balance that this particular show struck between the disability narrative it wanted to tell and the queer narrative it was telling along the way. And so we have their initial meet. We have Harry helping her little brother flirt with his unreliable suitor over the radio. And then she calls out to Luna to come back because they just sort of had a a misconnection moment when she picked up the reward for Wendy. And then there's an invite to eat food and they eat at the Chinese food joint that Harry likes. And then the next episode, they have a proper date at a fancy Italian restaurant, which turns into a message of the day disability moment that I think is handled well because they again mix it in with the queerness. What I like in Sleep With Me the most is that it's a disability 
narrative about two queer people with different disabilities falling for each other. And both of them have chronic conditions that will not improve because one of them is permanently wheelchair bound and the other has a sleep disorder that cannot be fixed with behavioral management or medication. And I really like stories about that because it's about how do two people who require care care for each other. And so Luna, who's kind of emotionally stunted because she doesn't get to have a lot of regular experiences with other people, like many people, doesn't consider the accessibility of the Italian restaurant when they go there. And then the ex is also present and makes Luna feel like shit for that. But even though like the date is a bit awkward, Harry salvages it and then they have their first bed scene together, which is one of my favorite ones that the lesbians have had so far because they made their first time feel fun. And I don't think even in BL that consistently sex is made to feel fun. It's usually like super intense and romantic in this huge moment. The first sex scene between Harry and Luna has a lot of silliness and joy to it. And it most has to do with getting Harry's pants off. And I really, really loved that. And I liked in terms of the disability component, you have this interesting thing in the morning where for most other couples, waking up in the morning together would be this huge romantic moment. But you get the thing where Harry is waking up and coming out of sleep and having an intimate conversation with Luna. But Luna is falling asleep because the sun is coming up and is still having a intimate moment, but she's fading, whereas Harry is waking up. And I really enjoyed how that came together. Where the consternation eventually comes from with them happens with a, a date they have planned. There's two things that happen. First, they're hanging out with Kai and his little boyfriend. And then something happens in the bathroom and Harry needs help. But Luna isn't capable of giving the help that they're going to need because they need to, to get a plumber. Then Luna's hosting Harry one night and Harry ends up late because they were struggling to get a taxi that was going to be friendly to a wheelchair user. So she ends up showing up super late for their dinner. And then they have a nice night together, but Luna can't just go to sleep. And so she gets restless and bored and gets up and decides to just go hang out at the bar near her house. And that's when she runs into Kai, who gives her a bunch of shit. And Kai is off base because Harry does have needs for help, but she's not helpless. So yeah, she knocked over a pot, but it really wasn't the end of the world. And this ends up sending Luna into a spiral because she feels like she can't take care of Harry because she can barely take care of herself. What I end up liking before that happens, though, is because we have such a short runtime, there was a lot of frank emotional discussion about these things, about how insecure Harry feels in the relationship itself. And I like that their time apart in the narrative forces Harry to work on herself more. I enjoyed the way this show balanced its queer romantic themes with its disability and accessibility messaging. Maybe I think it's because I watched it slower because I was basically watching it in real time on Gaga that I wasn't as caught off guard by some of the pacing choices as you may have been because I had time to think between the independent episodes. That makes a lot of sense sometimes. And we talked about this before in part two, sometimes some of these things are not made for binging and probably that is the difference here. You didn't binge it and I did. And that's probably why there are these 
disconnects in the ways that we feel about it. And these things matter when you're watching episodic television, whether you binge or not. When you watch something, what you watch before you watch something else, the sequence in which you watch things, these things matter because everything you watch changes the way that you look at the next thing that you watch. So in the end, Ben, you're awarding the best GL because you watch them all. I'm giving it to sleep with me. And it has to do, I think, for their ability to pull some genuine nuance out of their disability and queer storytelling together without punching down on either group and it feeling very specific as a result. That being said, I want to say that she loves to cook and she loves to eat and she makes my heart flutter. We're absolutely standout productions very much worth watching and i'm very excited for potentially more gl in the coming year particularly with gmmtv finally jumping into the game properly and with some of the things we know about on the horizon hopefully releasing soon okay we struggled with this particular category we ended up calling it best small market bl and this was for the philippines vietnam the other countries in Southeast Asia, which did produce some things like Malaysia produced a very small production last year and all of the West, because they don't make things consistently or I don't always know who they're for. So we're just calling it, we're just putting them all part of the, the small market category. So I'll read off the whole list because I do think all of these shows are worth everyone's time. Game Boys 2, Heartstopper, Young Royals 2, Rainbow Prince, Interview with the Vampire, and our flag means death. I've been speaking for a bit. So Nini, you want to talk about your particular nominees in this category? Okay, so I'm going to start with Our Flag Means Death. And I nominated this despite not having finished it, which is something that I do not usually do. However, Gasp. this is one of the queerest things that I saw in all of 2022, hands down the start of the story between Steed Bonnet and Blackbeard. And then the story between Jim and uh, Ola one day. I loved everything about it. It is a Taika Waititi joint. So it's sharp. It's clever. All of the actors are on a hundred. It's just a fun little show. They're about to be doing the second season. I intend to catch up with it very soon. I agree Next. with you that it was one of the queerest things that we maybe had over the year. What was fascinating for me about this show was the showrunner who is not queer and I think is not really that versed in queer cinema and is not familiar with the queer viewing audience because he was surprised by how the show only properly exploded in queer popularity at episode nine when Taika and Reese Darby decided to outside of the script, make their characters kiss each other. And he was confused because he was surprised that we were all tweeting, the show is actually gay, now let's let's get this, y'all. And he's like, well, I thought we made it clear from episode five. And he's not wrong. There was a lot of queer stuff happening in the background with a bunch of the side characters. And all of it is really noteworthy because you have two characters that are in an open, a healthy, open relationship with each other, you have a non-binary character that's just taken really in stride and 
they develop a really healthy relationship with another male character. But the problem we run into is the main characters had an intense homoerotic relationship. The queer viewing audience has been baited so hard, so many times. We refused to take a consolation prize in the queer side characters because we weren't sure if they were going to fully commit with Blackbeard and Steed. And he was surprised that it took the two of them making out for us to sign on. And we had to explain to him what the history of queer baiting in the West looks like and how this audience does not trust showrunners for this. And this leads to a more important conversation that I would like to have maybe at another time about how the West is incapable of telling long-term pining stories because shows get canceled before we get payoff. And so the audience feels like they were just being baited into watching something, which means that showrunners can't tell stories about slow burn queer romance unless they have a more fast paced development or established queer relationship in the show already from the jump. And that's probably the biggest distinguishing factor between Western queer friendly media and BL. Like we could have a character mooning for a whole character for like half the damn show and not even bat an eye in BL because we understand the conventions of the genre. But the West doesn't have that. And so the queer viewing audience is hostile because it feels like they're just being used. And we've had instances where actors were playing queer and then the word from on high came to shut it down. It's important when we're talking about the queerness of Our Flag Means Death that there is a specific history with the in-real-time watching experience of the early adopter fans being, this seems really gay, but hang on, y'all. Which was the call that I remember seeing, was this is pretty gay, but hang on for a second. My second nominee was Heartstopper, and I wanted to talk about Heartstopper because I feel like Heartstopper is the first real Western BL. And it came after Love, Victor, and it came technically after Young Royals, which also have BL DNA. But something about Heartstopper feels the most like traditional BL. It's very sweet. It's very gentle. It felt like a big warm hug to watch. I thoroughly enjoyed it. I remember posting at the time that every Charlie Spring needs a Nick Nelson. I loved the queer friend group. I love queer friend groups because I have never in my life met a queer person who was the only queer person in their friend group. But you see it so much in media. So I love to see queer friend groups. I just enjoyed the hell out of this and it actually felt like BL which is not normally how western queer media feels there was some consternation when it aired about Alice Oseman being misquoted about people drawing BL comparisons Teen Vogue who has a, a very dedicated BL viewer in their writing team actually wrote a comparison about Heartstopper it's like if you're keen on watching more stuff after Heartstopper I believe it's a she. I apologize if I misgendered you. She says you should watch. You should watch Bad Buddy next, and draws direct comparisons between Heartstopper and Bad Buddy. 
in an article on the Teen Vogue website. Teen Vogue has been doing the Lord's work, bringing BL to the West. <laughs> My third nominee was Game Boys 2. And we've talked ad nauseum about Game Boys 2 in our first and second episode. So I'm just going to let what I said sit. But... It has real powerful staying power. And we're going to keep talking about Game Boys 2. I think that Game Boys 2 is something that we're going to be talking about for a long time. I think that Game Boys, the whole, the whole Game Boys thing, Game Boys 1 and Game Boys 2, is something that we're going to be talking about for a long time. Not just in Filipino BL, but in BL in general. It just really so, captures a very particular moment. And it becomes something that's almost archival. And I feel like that's one of the reasons why. It feels found footage Yeah, a bit. Also, the actors filmed themselves, and huge props to that. I ended up nominating in our voting process, Our Flag Means Death, Rainbow Prince, and Game Boys 2. I spoke about Rainbow Prince and the power of drag queens and gumption and queer favor networks putting that show together. And Rainbow Prince is a really special show. It is so silly. But I really think that everyone should genuinely give the show a real chance. Particularly if you like complaining about bad sound in Thailand, Rainbow Prince has really solid sound. It's a very silly little show, but they worked really hard to put that together. And it's just such a delight. Our award goes to... Game Boys 2! Because we both think it felt like the most important show of the ones we watch. And it's the one that lingers with both of us emotionally moving on to our next category best kbl so i nominated chuckle milkshake blooming and to my star two y'all i had a hard time with this one i did not watch that much kbl this year but huang the soul and strongberry and i gotta pick one I didn't even watch some of this other stuff. I watched what else is on this list? This Semantic other Arrow. Stuff she says dismissively. <laughs> I watched Semantic Error, loved Semantic Error, but in the face of To My Star Two Blooming and Choco Milkshake, Semantic Error did not make the cut for me. And then the other two on this list are Roommates of Pungduck 304 and Oh My Assistant, which I have not watched. And I am in the process of being convinced to try. I'm not sure that I will. But All right. let me know when you're ready. I'll do my spiel on why you should maybe <laughs> watch these shows. <laughs> I've talked already about how I felt about Choco Milkshake when we were discussing the OT3 award. So I will leave that as said, but basically casting, 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 and also melancholy, loneliness, love. It's such a beautiful little show. And then at the end, Choco and Milk actually come back to Jungwoo. And it's not forever, which is another thing that I do like about Choco Milkshake. There is no happily ever after. There is surprisingly bittersweet show. There is very... I love it. It is bittersweet, but the sweet is so much more than the bitter. I really loved it. Blooming. What can I say about Blooming that has not been said? It's genius. It's beautiful. I hear there's more of it coming. I'm ready. 
been nominated semantic error i would have nominated semantic error if i had more than three nominees because semantic error was that good it just i think that was the the thing that, about my determination so i included in my initial list roommates of Pundak 304 and oh my assistant but i only ended up nominating chocolate milkshake semantic error into my star because the question for me which was was of the shows here which ones are gonna i think really impact Korean BL going forward. And I selected those three because Strongberry has the strongest pulse on what queer friendly viewing is going to look like in Korea. And it was massively successful for them. Semantic Error has dominated the conversation since it released as part of the Korean BL conversation. And To My Star 2 is so artistically relevant as a continuation. And it's really hard for me not to talk about it. I agree with you that in terms of importance and impact, semantic error is going to have the most impact on KBL going forward. But in the end, I awarded the best KBL and Ben and I agreed on this to to my star two. Again, we've discussed to my star two at length when we discussed the Best Direction Award for Huang De Sul. So I will let that stand, but I just wanted to say again, wow, what a show. And I love that it was about bringing Sejun and Jiwoo back together. It wasn't some kind of victory lap for them. It was about understanding that despite the fact that they had gotten together at the end of the series, there was still all this baggage. And this baggage would probably mean that in reality, they would break up and they would have to work on themselves individually before coming back together. And I loved watching that happen. As a note for, in case we haven't made that clear here, we loved I Promise You the Moon. So we also loved To My Star too, for some similar reasons. Ben is being very understated when he says <laughs> that we loved I Promise You the Moon. We fucking loved I Promise You the Moon. We get we get one of those per episode. She's using it here. Okay, moving on to best JBL. And as the resident JBL expert, Ben, take it away. Yes. Yes, it's time. Okay, so I selected Old Fashioned Cupcake, Minato's Laundromat, Eternal Yesterday, Kabe Koji Nekoyashiki-kun Desires to be Recognized, and Takara-kun to Amagi-kun. I dropped Takara and Amagi because as much as I enjoyed the endearing quality of first desire with them, I feel like, as Nini likes to call it, they pulled their punches. I don't think they followed through with what they initially introduced while it is incredibly watchable and really lovely i was left wanting a little bit more from it. though i will say this sato arata and oriyama now are so much fun to watch and if i get to see oriyama now again in another show i will watch it even if it's a head show because he is such an incredible physical actor to watch and i want to study him despite my deep love for kabe koji I dropped it on this because it's fundamentally a parody, though it does have Framboise in it, who is my favorite character of the year. And hopefully a dear friend of ours starts to feel better soon so that they can make a particular gift set we talked about with an essay I wrote 
because this is not going to be the time I talk about Framboise at length. But if you've picked up on my love of older queer characters who support younger queer characters, Framboise is everything I hope to be to other people. Next is Eternal Yesterday. A lot of people did not like Eternal Yesterday and will not watch Eternal Yesterday because there is a dead queer character in it and that makes them sad. And the show, spoiler alert, does not revive the dead queer character. But I have suffered very personal losses as a queer person. And I think that it is helpful for some of us to have a piece of media to use as a way to open up that discussion with other people in the maybe even with ourselves. I unpacked how I felt about a loss that occurred 15 years ago as a result of watching Eternal Yesterday, and I feel like I am in a better place emotionally because of it. And more shows about grief should be this gentle about it. It is a phenomenal production and very much worth anyone's time to watch if you can find yourself in the right headspace for it. Minato's Laundromat is on this list because no show recently has tackled age gap romance with more seriousness than this particular show. And I really appreciate that this show wasn't traditional yaoi overly reliant on semi and uke tropes and was really grounded in some of the struggles that live queer experiences entail, which include a lot of internalized homophobia. Like the reason why Minato is single and kind of aimless and unattached is because he's still not over a crush he had when he was 17, 18, and he's not over hating himself for being queer. And that's something he has to work through on this show. And I really like that the thrust of Shin's character is that he hates how young he is because he knows how he feels about Minato and is frustrated that he's not old enough yet that he can reach for what he wants. And that show could have really, really messed that up. And they don't at all. It is really, truly well executed. And one of the most enjoyable watches that I had this year. And we've said enough about Old Fashioned Cupcake. It's just that damn good. About Have we said enough? (laughs) I will say again, a show about someone giving back the love you gave to them, even when you weren't paying attention, and that helping you get back on your feet is absolutely transcendent. And it's why Old Fashioned Cupcake ends up winning our award, because I want to bite things because of how much I love the fact that when Togo were first joined the company and was struggling, without even paying much attention, Nosewe says a couple of kind words to him about finding balance in his life, and that allows Togoa to become someone who enjoys the life he lives. And he just admires Nosewe from afar for a decade before giving that same gift back to him when Nosewe is going through a midlife crisis. And that is so, so special. Old Fashioned Cupcake, y'all. Very good show. You should watch it if you haven't. It's very short. It's on Vicky. Our next category is Best Taiwanese BL. And 
we've already established I did not watch any Taiwanese BL last year. So, Ben, take it away. That means I get to keep talking. I nominated About Youth, DNA Says I Love You, My Tooth, Your Love, Plus and Minus, and Papa and Daddy Season 2. So Papa and Daddy Season 2 falls off right away because it's not actually BL. It's more about, like, gay life drama. But I think it's important to talk about Papa and Daddy 2 long term because we do need to talk about the lived experience of queer people who choose to stay together. Staying together is the hardest part. I drop plus and minus because I think they dropped the ball towards the end. And I ended up really dissatisfied with the show. So the three I ended up nominating were About You, DNA Says I Love You, and My Tooth, Your Love. DNA Says I Love You is a show that I have a difficulty describing because I really don't want to spoil it. I don't personally subscribe to spoiler culture. I don't like the idea that we shouldn't talk about what happens in a show because we'll somehow ruin the experience for the potential viewers. And I think that's stupid because how else do you advocate for shows that are good? And some of the most popular stories, everyone already knows what happens in them. And it's not about the the not knowing is not what makes it good. It's about the journey you go on. However, DNA Says I Love You ends up utilizing a part of the alphabet mafia that we don't normally see. And the way that that is handled is so carefully and tastefully done that I really don't want to describe it further. I will just say that it's initially about a group of friends trying to get a YouTube channel off the ground. And then somebody who's recently returned to Taiwan joins their team. And a tiny little BL romance starts to grow between them. But this show is so absolutely captivating. And the way they handle this particular queer storyline would have gone wrong in so many other people's hands. And Eric Lynn gives one of the best queer performances of the year as Amber. Because I believe any other actor could have absolutely botched that and made a mockery of what they were asked to portray. And it is one of the experiences of the year that I am still not over. DNA says I love you is really fascinating. I don't necessarily think it's the greatest show of the year. or It's not even the one I ended up choosing as the winner for this one, but it is incredibly special. And I think if you're a BL viewer who says we need to do more queer storytelling in BL, you need to watch DNA says I love you. How do I advertise for About Youth? If you are enjoying My School President, you will probably also enjoy About Youth. About Youth is basically a hug as a Taiwanese BL. It is so delightful. It's a high school romance show. One of them is a member of a band and the other is a very attractive, very popular, very good student. But his life is kind of empty because his parents only let him study all the time. A cute romance develops between them, and then on the side, the studious boy's best friend has a very interesting thing going on with gender presentation and ends up falling for the other character's friend who's a member of his band. It is really a very simple but incredibly delightful little show. So if you need to just feel better for a weekend and need something light and enjoyable to watch because you just need to curl up, I highly recommend about you. But my winner for Taiwanese BL this year is My Tooth, Your Love. 
And the reason it wins is because it is about 30 somethings with careers falling in love with each other. And this for me is so necessary in genre because I'm in my 30s and I don't always want to just watch stories about teenagers or college kids falling in love with each other. I really like the way the characters in My Tooth Your Love fall for each other. Also, if you are someone who enjoys cinematography and really likes watching the camera move to keep the actors in frame so they can keep acting, My Tooth Your Love is a constant treat. Some of the most interesting shots that I've gotten to see this year were all in My Tooth Your Love. It is such joy to watch actors act. And My Tooth Your Love delivers that in spades. And it was such a relief for me to watch adults fall for each other because all the BL things that sometimes happen with people maybe misstepping or creating angst end up becoming points of frustration. And there's a really long take that's about three minutes, 42 seconds long at the end of episode eight that if you can't watch the show, I recommend watching. I believe Gaga has a highlight of this on their channel of the particular fight they have. And it is so fascinating to watch a BL character throw back in the face of their prospective partner who's been giving them a difficult time. All the things that were frustrating them along the way, things that we've yelled at the TV, like, why are you doing this to me? Is this how we're going to be? I don't think I want to give in to you because is this what our relationship is going to be? It is a phenomenal experience. And then we say phenomenal or not, but it truly rewired my brain as I watched it and made me again realize that I'm getting older and what I want out of my queer viewing is different now. And really, I think only Taiwan's in a position to deliver that because they have marriage equality. So a big part of what they're starting to think about in their shows is how are people going to stay together? And My Tooth, Your Love, absolutely incredible show and is the winner of the best Taiwanese BL played from us this year. It's interesting that you talked about the direction because I looked it up when we were prepping for the show and I realized that it's directed by the same person as We Best Love. So that's something to recommend. Which is the main reason I was drawn to it. Yeah. That's something to recommend it. And it's been on my list. It will probably move a couple of slots up my list. I have a long list, guys. (laughs) I have a long list, guys. (laughs) Okay, so best Thai BL. Now I get to talk. (laughs) (laughs) You got to listen to Ben talk about Japanese BL being sad and how that's a good thing. And Taiwanese BL being old and how that's a good thing. Now it's finally time for Thailand. My turn. (laughs) The difference between Japanese and Taiwanese and Thai is that the both of us have watched all of the Thai BL that's on this list. And again, we have agreed on all of our nominees and we agreed on the winner. We had 100% agreement. So this is this is the most unified I think we were across I the entire experience. 
It definitely was. So in terms of choosing the best TIBL, when you're dealing with TIBL, because there's so much volume, some of the criteria are a little different. So for me, quality is one criterion. So all the nominees on this list are very high quality productions. The second thing that I'm considering in my nominations is what had impact and what is going to keep impacting the industry as it moves forward. I think everything on the list had impact and I could see the impact reverberating. But the third thing that I ended up with is what is the most tie of these series in terms of the DNA of TIBL and what you think of immediately when you think of TIBL, which of these shows is the TIBList of the TIBL shows? The three nominees, and I think nobody is going to be surprised by these Bad Buddy, Ken Porsche, and Secret Crush on You. We have talked ad nauseum about these three shows, about these three productions, about the direction, about the acting, about the music, about what they mean, about the impact that these are going to have on the industry. Our winner for Thai BL of 2022 is Secret Crush on You. And I think that's going to surprise some people, but it shouldn't. And here's why. Of all the TIBL, of all the high-quality TIBL, of all the high-quality, impactful TIBL, Secret Crush on You felt like the most traditional TIBL. If you were introducing somebody to TIBL, the representation of the genre that I would show them of these shows would be Secret Crush on You. And that's so strange because we've talked about how Secret Crush on You is different, how it looks at femmes and a trans character and the way that these characters are interacting with each other is different than you would normally get in TIBL. But to me, outside of those things, it's got the strict semi-uke dynamics that TIBL tends to like. It's candy colored. It's over the top. It's, it's set at a school. It's set at a university. <laughs> I loved it. Ben loved it. We're discussing why this show needed to win over the other shows. The big thing for us was this is the show that uses BL tropes the most consistently and then most also holds on to its core notion that BL should belong to the queers and the femmes who have been holding the genre together the entire time and says that these people deserve to be loved and shouldn't be the butt of the joke. And it does that while still maintaining all of the basic prescriptions of a Thai BL with some of the more standout performances of the year. And you get the sense that of the shows here, Secret Crush on You is the one most pushing on like what Thai BL is a genre can be going forward beyond just being a show about hot boys mooning at each other. Yep. So best IBL of 2022 vibe award goes to secret crush on you. 
We will send be sending yet another plate to Idle Factory. So our BL of the year. Such a hard category. We've talked about all of these shows at length, and I think it'll be more useful to just talk about why of the shows we had here, which one ended up winning. Our nominees were Bad Buddy, Kin Porsche, Old Fashioned Cupcake, Secret Crush on You, Blooming, Semantic Error, Game Boys 2, and The Eclipse. And the winner of the inaugural Vibe Award BL of the Year 2022 is Bad Buddy. When we're talking about what's the best BL of the year, it becomes a question for me of which show becomes a beacon lighting the way for what I think the genre is being pulled towards the most. And I think it's especially notable that despite Nini's love of Thai BL and my overall love of BL as a whole, that the winner comes out of Thailand because I feel like most years the winner is not from Thailand, but Bad Buddy sets a new standard for what BL can be. And we're feeling the impacts of Bad Buddy in all of the rom-coms that GMMTV has been executing since then. And we're feeling it so much in My School President right now. As of this recording, we're about halfway through My School President and have been having a pleasant time comparing it structurally to what was being done in Bad Buddy. And that, for me, is what separates Bad Buddy from the rest of the shows on this list. Because Bad Buddy is a pioneer. It's making way for more things in its wake. It's one thing for a show to just be good and phenomenal and to be everybody's favorite and for us to fall down over it. It's another thing for a show to create space and maintain people's interest in the ecosystem that it allows to build around it. The totality of Bad Buddy is so precious that I think we will be referring back to it for at least the next five years. I think it's going to become a modern classic. I think we're going to be talking about it in 10 years, to be quite honest with you. I hope so. It's everything. It really is everything. And Pat got shot, guys. Oh, Lord, here we go. (laughs) Pat got shot. Do you know what it means to me that Pat got shot in Bad Buddy? Really, if if you follow us on Tumblr, I would like for you to go to Nini's blog at Short People Fed Up and just search with however you search on Tumblr for Pat got shot because she has made diagrams about it for those of you who weren't (laughs) sure if Pat got shot. I think I'm going to be reblogging those posts tomorrow, so look out for those if you want to find me on Tumblr. It's S-H-O-R-T-P-P-L-F-E-D-U-P. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let y'all know how Pat got shot, where Pat got <laughs> shot, what could have happened if Pat got shot slightly differently. There's a lot in there. This was <laughs> difficult for us at first. We actually had a, a very long conversation amongst ourselves about who should be the BL of the year. And it really came down to what was the primary metric for us. And the question for us was which show ends up becoming genre defining 
for the year itself. And it was very close between Bad Buddy and Old Fashioned Cupcake. And it ends up being Bad Buddy because of mostly GMMTV. Because it's difficult for us to track how things perform in Japan and then how they respond from the success or failure of some of their projects. But we have been living in the post-Bad Buddy world for a year now. And it's pretty glorious. And that makes it the BL of the year. On to the fun part. We're going to award our special class awards. These are two shows that Ben insisted that I watch, and he was correct. And we have not discussed at all. These two beautiful shows are the standout queer narratives of the air, as far as we're concerned. There's no voting here. These are just two shows that were so special that we are sending them plates regardless. And the reason that these two shows don't come in under BL is that they are not romances. And you will understand what we mean when we talk about them. The two shows that we are going to talk about are 180 Degree Longitude Passes Through Us and Koisanu Fatari. I'm going to let Ben start because Ben is the one who insisted that I watch these. And he was 100% correct. These I basically shows, refused to do the podcast so she didn't watch either of these shows. They're absolutely necessary. And we're going to tell you why. So 180 Degree Longitude Passes Through Us is basically a one-room drama where a very tiny cast is locked into a single location and they're just going to demolish each other by existing near each other. Some of you may not be familiar with that concept instinctively, but if you watched The Good Place, season one is basically a one-room drama because it's about four people trapped in a scenario together. 180 Degree Longitude is about a young man named Wang, whose mother is a very successful Tai Likorn director, and she's taking him on a location scouting mission outside of Bangkok to northern Thailand. While they are driving through the Thai countryside, they run into some car difficulties, and when they seek help, they end up discovering the mountain hideaway that an old friend of his mom's is staying at. And they end up spending a few days with him. And this turns into an unpacking of what went wrong in all of these people's relationships related to Wang's father, who died when he was young. Wang is aware of the homosocial activities that may have occurred between his father, Siam, and this man named Intawat. And Wang is determined to figure out 
what happened with his dad. Why his dad and his mom broke up. Why is his mom an alcoholic now? Why did his dad become an alcoholic and eventually die in a car crash? And why did Intowut basically flee the world? And this particular production ends up becoming one of the most vital queer experiences I've had in a really long time. When I finished the show, I called it Baldwin-esque in the sense of Punisak Sukis, the director and screenwriter, ability to construct a very narrow queer experience that he wanted to describe. And so in this, Wang knows of his own queer nature and he sees it in into what immediately from what he had also seen from his dad's old photos. And he is determined to figure out what happened here. And the relationship that evolves between the two of them very quickly is so messy, particularly because of the age gap. There's like a 20-odd year age gap between them. And it's not an aspirational model. And a lot of people who did watch it ended up being somewhat disaffected by the end of this particular story. But I ended up really loving the rage at the core of the Wang character. He's furious at the conservatives in his life with it represented by his mother who only want queer people to fall in line and do what they want and he's furious with older queers who survived like into what who have retreated from the world who think that their neutrality makes them somehow better or higher than other people in the end the show grants this really important message to viewers which basically says that neutrality is not going to move the needle forward on improving the lives of the queer people you care about, including your own. That you have to pick a side. And it manages to do this while simultaneously unpacking the intense traumas that have befallen some of the queer elders in our lives. And I ended up deeply understanding into what's fear and why he hides away from the world as a result. And it ends up being one of these, I guess, sad is like the easiest word to use, but it ends up being one of the most emotionally difficult pieces that I watched this year that I felt actively challenging me. And when I say it feels like Baldwin, with Baldwin, you have the quintessential frustration of the intellectual. They can see clearly what might be wrong with the world around them. They can detail it excruciatingly across many books, but they don't have the power to fix it and change it themselves. And it just makes them scream constantly. You can feel that when you read any of Baldwin's essays or any of his novels. And I feel that every time I engage with Punisak Suki here, because inside of 180 Degree Longitude, you have a queer creator who can see what's happening to his own society as they're rapidly industrializing and they're starting to deal with these generational pressures like a lot of our own countries went through. And he can see the moment and he desperately wants to do more, but all he can do is tell stories I cannot get over this particular show. This show 
is about four people, although only three people are actually in the show, who need to be as far away from each other as possible. (laughs) And then you take those people, three living people and the ghost of one, and throw them into a place where they have to confront each other and they have to confront their history and they have to confront their reality. I remember when I was watching the show because I was messaging with Ben while I was watching the show and I was talking to him about the character of Sissy Wamal, who is Wang's mother. And I was telling him, Sissy Wamal reminds me of so many women that I know, so many single mothers of queer sons who are in complete denial about who their sons are. Sissy Wimal is a nightmare. Sissy Wimal is also Wang's greatest asset. The relationship between Wang and Sissy Wimal is loving and toxic and perfect and horrendous. It is both dream and nightmare. I can't stop thinking about Susuimal and Susuimal and Wang's relationship because those two fight all the time, we're told. When we meet them, it's this love fest. They have this back and forth friends relationship. They're best friends, except they're not. They also hate each other in the way that you can only hate somebody that you love with all your heart. Sissy Wimal is a woman who has been disappointed in life and love. She's a very successful director of Lacan's. But the shows that she makes are derided as out-of-touch, old-school fantasy by her own son. Because Sissy Rimal, having been disappointed in life and love, continues to recreate the love story that she wishes that she had instead of the one she got, where she fell in love with a man who was already in love with somebody else. And not just in love with somebody else, but in love with somebody that she could never hope to compete with, both because it was a man and also because these two grew up together. You also get the sense that she maybe loved into what first and maybe only pursued Siam as a way to maybe get into what's I. And he, being the self-flagellating gay that he is, just shoved them together instead. That is a possibility, but I think what I more got out of it was that maybe she did like into it, but it became increasingly clear to her that she was never going to have a chance with him. And so she told herself that the person that she loved was Sam. And Siam really loved into what, but he could not accept that properly. And he destroys both of them in the process. Into what destroys everybody, basically, by never being able to say how he feels about Siam. It destroys things in two ways. 
because he could never admit his feelings to Siam, Siam ended up marrying Sisiwimol. And then after his relationship with Sisiwimol broke down, they got divorced. He becomes an alcoholic. He's super depressed. He tries to reach out to Intawat because Intawat at this point has vanished from their lives. Intawat ran a mile away from Sosiwamal and Siam after Wang was born. He saw how much Siam loved Wang and he decided that he could never destroy the family that they had built. I think it's important to talk about how much Intawat hates himself. He does. Intawat hates himself. He hates everything about himself. He hates himself completely and utterly. And when Wang was born, he ran away from his best friend, who is also the man that he was in love with. He never communicated with them. He ran away from Sisiwimol, who was his friend, even though the way that Sisiwimol professes friendship is, again, twisted and toxic because every relationship in this show is toxic and twisted. And when Siam was at his lowest, Siam tries to reach out to Intawut, and Intawut does not answer his call. And it is heavily implied, and it's really sort of the backbone of why Wang goes looking for Intawat in the first place. It is heavily implied that Intawat not answering Siam's call is the reason that Siam died, because the story implies that he committed suicide. That's the understanding that I had. I don't know, Ben, if that's the understanding. No, it's what I got had. out of it too. Young people, we talk about the adults a lot because Nini and I are older. I was thinking about uh, an experience I had fairly recently when I went to a wedding. We picked up one of the baby gays from the airport and brought him with us. He's like 12 years younger than me. And I asked him out of curiosity one day when we were hanging out if he liked being gay. And he was confused by the question because it had never occurred to him. But if you are of a certain age listening to this podcast, you understand why I would ask that question. I did not enjoy being queer when I was a young lad. I would have chosen otherwise if I could have, because it was awful as a youngster to be this way. But I really like how a lot of the young people do not suffer that question the way many of us did. And I think it's important to talk about that sometimes and why some people struggle with the sadder queer shows. They did suffer. It was hard. It was not always easy. And so you end up with this huge generational divide. You have characters like Entawat who suffered and inflicted suffering and are functionally dead. They no longer participate in the world. They are away from it. They aren't engaged with other people. They can't give love and they can't receive love. Despite their intellectualism and their ascetic natures and how magnanimous they can seem, they aren't connected to anyone. But then you have young people like Wang who are desperately fighting for what they know the world should be. And we have to make the choice in our 30s, 40s, or more to get out of the way of the young people and give them the tools they need to succeed. We should be glad that the young people are loud and rambunctious and annoying because we didn't get to be. 
And I love the way Pond plays Wang. It's interesting when Pond talks about this particular role. He seemed a little bit nervous about it, but apparently he was the only actor considered for this role. And he was super nervous about that. He still auditioned, but he said it was a lot of pressure on him because when the, the team was putting together this project, he was the only actor they wanted. And I can see why. I mean, he's a Nadal alum and a lot of them are really talented, but he brings this ferociousness in Wang that is a rare quality in any of the queer characters that we ever get to see. Like we can talk about characters who have rage and characters who are determined, but Wang is fierce. He is a fighter in a way that I've not really seen out of Southeast Asian queer cinema. And I adore Wang so much as a result of that. He has so much heart in him and he's angry in a way that feels grounded in the world we live in now. And you can feel in the writing of all of this, how specific to Thailand Punasek Saki's current frustration is. What I also end up liking so much about this particular drama, and this is maybe one of the places where Nini and I weren't necessarily aligned, is Punasek Saki is originally a, a stage play director and a playwright. And so there is a theatrical quality to this particular show that is very unusual if you're used to watching any Thai media of any sort. He tends to use almost Japanese-esque framing, but without their understanding of the middle ground, foreground, and the background. And he tends to have these really long sequences that let the actors monologue. Like These actors have to be good because they are not portraying easy characters and they have very difficult scenes that they have to portray. And he really uses the setting well. There's this one constant set piece used throughout the show with these bars that are kind of fitting in the middle of into what's room that I kept calling the architectural bars that are basically the self-imposed prison that into what has placed upon himself. Like this architectural piece is in the middle of the room. It's literally in the way and he's an architect. So the only reason this is going to be in the way is because it has architectural merit to him. And the way it's used in the framing constantly is they often put into what behind them as bars because he has literally caged himself in. And I went feral repeatedly while watching this show because of the architectural bars. And I, I really enjoyed the theatrical framing of the show. I think it's really important to note about those bars as well, that they're almost freestanding. So he's literally placed himself behind these bars. There's nothing else keeping him trapped behind these bars except himself. And I did find that really interesting. I enjoy stage. I enjoy screen. I think they're two very different mediums. And I think you can always tell when you take something that was meant for the stage and put it on the screen as is, you can feel it. And personally, that is a personal pet peeve of mine because I think television is such an important medium that I think that if you are making something for television, there are certain conventions of television and the way that television is filmed and directed that I think you need to lean more into. 
because the rhythms of the stage are very different. And the reason that the rhythms of the stage are different is because there is no editing. There is no cuts. There is none of that when you're on the stage. You have to play what's in front of you and you have to do it good and you have to do it right and you have your hit your marks. Being on stage is a ballet. One of the things that I didn't enjoy in 180 Degrees, and this is the thing that you did enjoy, the characters talk at each other. They don't necessarily talk to each other. And again, that's just one of the things that comes from the theatrical nature of the piece. They have these, as you said, monologues that they engage in when they're essentially supposed to be having conversations with each other. Instead, they're having these monologues and the other person is just sitting there being talked at. And yes, they're going through an incredible face journey while they're doing it. And that's why the acting is so important in this. If the acting wasn't as good as it is, and I cannot stress enough how excellent the acting is in this. Not excellent for Thailand, excellent acting stands up against anybody anywhere in the world. Pon Pon Lawit, Nike Nitidon, and Ma'am Catalia. This show needs to win an Emmy. It needs to win an Oscar. It needs to win a Brit. It needs to win whatever whatever awards are out there. It needs to win <laughs> all of them. Hollywood Foreign Press, you're not listening to this podcast. They need to win a Golden Globes. They need to win everything that is available because the show is just phenomenal. The acting is phenomenal. The writing is phenomenal. As much as I personally don't enjoy the direction, I can objectively recognize that it is phenomenal. It's true because I would argue that like, in response to your point about them talking at each other, that's actually, I think, intentional because that's part of the problem. Yes, it is. You have Wang is desperately asking for people to listen to him so he can connect because he needs to understand because he feels trapped and he's being ignored. And that's the point. I find it so fascinating as well, because you've talked about the generational issue. Every pairing of characters in this scenario has a barrier between them with Wang dealing with both into and his mom, Sasiwimal, the generation gap is a huge problem because he wants answers and you can tell that in into what and Sissy Wimal's minds why is this kid harassing me can't he just be satisfied with what he knows why does he need to know this this is so painful to me why does he insist that I open up this wound and that reminds me of conversations that I've had with elders in my own family, because I am of the generation, probably the first generation that is so therapized. Our parents' generation is not therapized in that way. So there are times that I want to have certain conversations with elders in my family, and I have had to learn to accept that these are not things I'm going to get answers to that these are not conversations that I'm going to be able to have because they don't want to open up these wounds. They don't want to have these conversations. It doesn't help that Wang is also actively romantically pursuing in the entire time. 
Which is difficult for N because Wang looks exactly like his father. Yes. I think it's very important because when you see the old photos that Wang is looking at, Siam is never quite in the shot. You get the suggestion of him more than a photo of him, but Siam in the pictures is played by Pon Pon Lowit. So the And that was intentional to talk about that. That was not yes. uh, oh we couldn't afford people. That was no. the point. The point is Wang loved his father and misses him, and neither adult can get over Siam because they feel like he's haunting them because Wang is staring at them the whole time. Looking like his father. So for Wang Wang keeps insisting that he is in love with Intowit. And uh, what I feel, and I don't know again if this is because I'm older, so I am more towards Intowit and Sissi Wimal's age than Wang's age. I felt like Wang thinks he's in love with Intowit, but I think that Wang really misses his father and he wants to be close to somebody that his father was close to. I got the feeling that Wang is a very hurt, very sad, very damaged young man who has been through a lot in his life, who is looking for answers to why he lost his father, looking for answers to why his mother is the way that she is, looking for answers as to why the boy that he fell in love with at boarding school couldn't be with him. And that's what I love about Wang's ferocity. Like, he didn't necessarily choose queerness for himself. He discovered it in his desire to protect another boy from bullying. And as he came to understand these feelings, I think he started to understand something about his dad. And that's what draws him to N. I think he's trying to explore love for N because he's trying to understand who his dad was. And I really love that they just decided to let a a gay boy have daddy issues and just play them out toxically we we deserve it too (laughs) (laughs) no it's done it's done so well like this is a hard watch of all the things that i'm like oh you should watch this this is not an easy watch but it feels vital i think if you care about queer media and queer cinema. And the thing for me is the benefit of BL is that it creates opportunities for queer stories like this. And I don't think we would have gotten this particular show if BL wasn't so popular and if Gaga didn't exist as a mechanism to deliver BL to us. These sort of productions are hard to get off the ground because they have such niche appeal but I adored it with my whole heart. I think it's important. I think it's excellent. I can't say that I loved it because it's so painful. I still can't stop thinking about it. At this point, I watched it two, three weeks ago and Ben watched it weekly. I binged it. I don't think that in this instance, binging it ruined my experience. I think what happened is that it intensified it. It'll do that. So this was all coming at me all at once. I talked earlier in this episode about how watching certain things changes the way that you watch the next thing. 
And I think 180 degrees was one of those things for me where you watch it and you're just, yeah, this is going to change how I look at a lot of things going forward. One of the standout queer programs of 2022, I'm not going to recommend that everybody watch it because I think that for some people, it's going to be too much, too painful. It is a whole lot. But if you love difficult watches... I would suggest that you watch 180 Degree Longitude Passes Through Us. And I'm going to repeat the message of the show. that For young people, you are unfortunately going to have to experience a lot of pain as you grow. That is one of the unfortunate aspects about growing up. But for those of us who are older, as the show says, don't let your wisdom push you off to the sidelines. You have to make a choice. You have to choose whether or not you're going to continue to improve the lives of the young people coming behind us or if you're just going to lay down and just let things continue to be shit the way they are just watching things go by is not enough and then the third message which was for Sisiwimal and all the Sisiwimals of the world you have children you don't own them so our Second special class program for standout queer narratives was Koisenu Futari. Which the official English translation as given to me by my media server is two people who can't fall in love. So Koisenu Futari is about a relationship between two aromantic asexual people the show is not a romance but it is romantic the show is not a romance but it's a love story it is that the pairing if you're thinking about it in the traditional sense is sakuko and satoru sakuko and satoru are both aromantic asexual people who have been living life constantly being sort of chided by the people around them you know when are you gonna meet somebody when are you gonna you know when are you gonna find somebody when are you gonna all of that turning any interaction they have with someone the opposite sex into romance yes you know people trying to hook them up with friends all kinds of all the all the things that whether you're our ace or not if you're single and of a certain age this happens to you so They work in the same company, I believe, except that Sakuko works in the office and Satoru works as a... Takahashi worked in a supermarket. Yes, worked in a a supermarket um, in the vegetable section. And the whole vegetable thing becomes very important to the narrative. So they know each other already. They run into each other every so often Sakuko has to go to the supermarket and talk to the people who are working there. They already know each other. They have a cordial and pleasant relationship. And then one day Sakuko realizes that this blog that she has found and follows about somebody who is our ace is actually Satoru's blog. And from the time she discovers that, it all opens up for her. Now she has somebody that she can talk to. Now that she has somebody that she can ask things. Now she has words 
for the way that she feels about love and romance. Because she hasn't had words before. She couldn't explain to anybody in her life why she felt the way she felt about the way that they tried to push romance on her. The one friend that she could talk to about this stuff was her friend Chizuru. And that becomes an interesting runner in the story because Chizuru falls in love with her. She and Shizuru had planned to move out together because she's still living with her parents and uh, find a place together and live together. And then Shizuru realizes that she is in love with Sakuko and uh, bails on her, essentially, leaving her high and dry when she had been planning to move out of her parents' house. She runs away from her in a really traumatic split for them. I keep getting ahead of myself <laughs> because the <laughs> number one, no, because I, I just love this story so much. The number one thing that I want to say about this show and the way that it gripped me and why it gripped me. And this is the question I wrote down that I wanted to discuss with Ben. So I'm just okay. going to read it out. Now I'm excited. So, so I'm just going to read it out. Right. Why do we have such a hard time? understanding arrow ace people because most of the people that you love and form family and community with are not people that you are in romantic and sexual relationships with so i am somewhere on the spectrum of that i think it mostly comes down to people's misunderstanding of what it means to not feel something most people are incredibly emotional. They respond to everything they're feeling. Joy, mirth, sadness, melancholy, pain, terror, rage, excitement. But people aren't really that adept at recognizing when they're not feeling something. And many people's lives are romantically and sexually motivated. That's why most people get into trouble in politics anyway. And it's foreign to people for people to just not care about something. And we project so much of our own preferences onto other people that we're not always capable of understanding them on their terms. Like, I think straight people understand gay people in the sense of projecting their straight desires onto how gay people see same-sex partners. And I think in some cases, gay people do the same thing onto straight people. Though I feel like gay people are asked to empathize with straight romance far more often. And I don't think most people are ever asked to consider friendship that isn't romantically oriented or partnership oriented. It's one of the reasons why I think people are drawn to Miyazaki film. Because Miyazaki film feels very aromantic in a lot of ways. What works for me in this particular show, and this is where Japan is at its best, is when they have something to say, they're moving through, like the show feels like an essay where each episode is a paragraph of that essay. First, introducing the concept of people who don't feel attraction to each other and then further complicating it. And this is how their former partners feel about that when they try to express that to them. And here's how their families feel about them when they try to express that. And here's how other queer people feel about that when they try to express that. 
And here's what happens when they try to maintain an effective life together, but get wrapped up in other people's romantic trauma, like people cheating on each other. And here's what happens when one of them has an opportunity in life that maybe causes them to adjust their arrangement. Like, I really liked the non-date they have. I think it's in episode two when they spend the evening trying to take advantage of all of Takahashi's loyalty coupons. It's a lovely non-date in the sense of they don't go use the coupons together. It's we have limited time to use these coupons. All right, you take these. I'll take these. Let's go use the things. Oh, we've got one left, but I don't really need a jacket. I want a jacket. Okay, here, use the coupon. And it's lovely because in another show, this would have been treated as them running off together and having a wonderful evening using all of these coupons he saved up. But the joy for them just comes in having completed a mission that they went on and they end up sharing how disaffected they've been by their attempts at romance in the past which for any other show would have been like a huge romantic moment where they get closer, but instead they get closer in the sense that they understand each other more. I thought so much when I was watching this about the thing that Moore always talks about, about there being so much romance and friendship and wanting to see friendships in media to feel more like the friendships that they have. Because this is, as I said, it's not a romance, but it is a love story. And it is a story about two people falling in love with each other and deciding to create a family, but not in a romantic or sexual way. They don't fall, they don't fall in love in a romantic or sexual way. They haven't decided to form a family because of romantic or sexual attachment. This is two people who understand each other who decide to put their lives together. And it's because they were both lonely. Because Sakuko is coming off of a a deep wound and being let down by what felt like her closest female friend. And Takahashi is lonely because his grandmother was his only relative that he had, and she passed not that long ago. And now there's really no one he feels close to in his life. Like He's blogging about being Arrow Ace all the time because I feel like it's the only way he can maybe feel like he's mildly connecting to other people. Because also he's kind of a standoffish guy as well. Yes, and, and that is the difference between the two of them. And there's there's this idea that I suppose... Takahashi Satoru is the more quote-unquote traditional... Arrow Ace character where, yes, he's lonely, but he seems to have more or less hacked the whole I can be alone thing. Whereas Sakuko is very social. She doesn't want to be alone. She wants to have connections with people, not just this idea of creating a family, which is something that she's interested in, but she is not a person who can be alone in the way that Saturu has proven that he can be alone and survive alone and live a life that is relatively fine. Whereas Sakugo has proven to herself that she can't do that. So they're two very different flavors as well. I think that when it came down to it, probably Saturu could have gone the rest of his life without ever having that kind of human connection and he would have lived with it 
Whereas probably... I don't think he would have been happy, though. I think that's one of the great things about his admission, is even if he was put off by all the sudden activity in his life, he admits that he likes things being more lively. I also like that they had him be touch-repulsed and sex-repulsed. I'm really glad that that was very clear very early on, because it makes Kazu's constant pressing about, are you not attracted to her at all, land like the exact way it's supposed to. Like, I like that there's never, ever any hint of a potential romantic or sexual relationship between Takahashi and Sakako in the show. Because, like, Sakako, I don't think, is sex-repulsed, per se. Yeah, she does have sex with Kazu, but she doesn't enjoy it. And the fact that she doesn't enjoy it is what sends her on this journey, really. Because everybody keeps telling her, you know, one day when you meet somebody, you know, you'll feel the way that we all feel. And then she meets Kazu at work, and she does like him. They have a lot in common. She enjoys his company. But the minute things turn romantic or sexual, she's immediately uncomfortable. She is confused. She doesn't like it. She doesn't understand why it has to be this way, why they can't just continue on the way that they've been going. I liked watching Sakuko's journey throughout this. And I really liked the way that it made me think because I'm allosexual. I, it really made me think about, well, why do we place all these burdens and expectations on this idea of this one person who is your romantic and sexual partner? And why is that the person that we have to form a family with? Because the older I get as a single woman, the more I start thinking about what the future of my life looks like. And as other people in my family they get married and have kids and I have friends, groups of friends that I am very close to. And me and my friends and me and my siblings always talk about how we're going to end up all living together in a vertical urban commune that I will build because we want to be a family. And the fact that there is nowhere in there, for me anyway, at the and that's not for lack of trying on my side, because I am, as I said, I'm allosexual, that the idea of family for me, as I've grown older, has expanded. The idea of what it is to love and to build together has expanded. And I think this is not a show that I would have understood, perhaps in my 20s, or I would have had a much harder time with it. But at this time in my life, it's just like, yeah, why do we assume that Kyra and I had a great time with it because Kyra's arrow ace and I'm like demisexual. So we are getting all of our life from this show. I'm getting my life from it too. And I'm not either of those things. I really, really enjoyed it because as I said, I am a person. Yes, I'm a romantic. Yes, I like romantic love stories, but I like love stories, period. And watching these two who are not interested in each other romantically, sexually, in the slightest. Watching them form family, because found family is another thing that I love. Watching them form family and then getting to watch, because this is another part of the alphabet that you don't get stories about. You don't That's get true. stories That's another about reason asexual really people. I highlight it, because it is so determinately ace of a story. They take a whole aside in the story to send Sakuko to 
like an arrow ace meetup experience to share experiences with other people who are on the spectrum. And she gets a lot of stuff, like some people who are in relationships where they do have sex with partners, two women who have become partners TM, but really they live separate lives and only get together when each of the ones needs help. And there's a wide spectrum they show about people living in Arrow Ace experience in the show as well. And so it ends up not making these two feel really special. It just makes you really appreciate that they managed to find a connection in each other that allowed them to feel some sort of alignment to their lives. I also remember that scene because, again, you get, as you said, the breadth of the spectrum of ROAs because there was, I think I remember, there was a guy who was just asexual. He was not aromantic. He felt romantic love. He enjoyed romantic love, but he was not interested in sexual relationships. There, as you said, were these two women who built a partnership. They just like each other. They trust each other. They wanted to be family. And so they became family and they rely on each other for the things that they need to rely on each other for and otherwise live completely independent lives. There are people who have sex with their partners because they're asexual but not touch repulsed and they enjoy the feeling of being close to their partners that sex brings even if they don't enjoy sex itself and it's just a a whole range of different kinds of relationships with romance and sex that you don't see and I really enjoyed it I really thoroughly enjoyed it it made me think about some things in my life that I probably hadn't thought about in such depth and detail. There's a part of the story where Sakuko's sister is, she's married, she has one child and she's pregnant and she has the second child during the course of the show. And the whole question of does Sakuko even want children? If she did want children, what would that look like? She and Takahashi are now in this relationship even if it's, again, not a romantic or sexual one, they are in this life relationship and the things that they decide for themselves matter to the other person. So if she did want a child, would that be something that he would want? There are lots of ways to have a child now that don't involve having sex or even if they had to have sex to have a child, would that be something that they would be interested in? And the way that they navigate these questions, because now all these questions, because these aren't things that just happen for them, all these questions are things that they need to discuss. And that is really interesting because a lot of these things are just assumed in other narratives. They don't get discussed by the people. It's one of the reasons why I find myself consistently drawn to Japanese media when they want to tackle difficult topics. It's not queer, and so we're not going to highlight it on this show, but the friend who got both of us to watch this also got me to watch Silent this year, which is about a character who loses his hearing and bails on his friends and hurts his girlfriend. And then we mostly follow her, and she ends up running into him by happenstance years later because she didn't know he had lost his hearing. And it's played by Maguru Ren, who many of you might know from Kieda Hatsukoi, or My Love Mix-Up on Vicky. And it's also incredibly well done. Like When the Japanese storytellers really want to focus down on a particular dynamic, they follow all of the threads to their end point. And they don't bulk at exploring sometimes difficult territory. The other thing I want to highlight about 
Hoisinu Futari while we're here. And she loves to cook and she loves to eat. Is that both of them were produced by NHK, which is a publicly owned broadcaster in Japan. And I want to highlight this because while we're talking about the arts on this particular podcast for the last likely six hours, for those of you who've been listening this far, most of the shows we highlight come from companies or corporations that have a bottom line to follow. So they're actively trying to monetize our eyeballs and our viewership. NHK, as a publicly owned broadcaster in Japan, does not rely on advertisement for this. And so one of their mandates is to bring different kinds of stories to the Japanese people as a result. And I think it's really important that NHK has shown a consistent desire recently to tell worthwhile, interesting queer narratives. And it's unique out of all of the shows that we're going to highlight on this show in in the year that these particular shows are coming from a publicly owned broadcaster with a very different mandate. And so they're trying to create worthwhile storytelling and art pieces without unnecessarily the need to make a bunch of money off of them. I wanted to talk for a second before we wrap up about Chizuru, who is Sakuko's friend who falls in love with her and runs away. This is a person who is, as we said, Sakuko's friend who cares about her, who knows that Sakuko is not interested in a romantic relationship. Because of that, she doesn't want to bother Sakuko with her feelings. So just not in the sense of just not telling her, but she knows that if she stays around Sakuko, it's going to be really painful for her and they will come apart as friends because of the way that she feels about her. So instead, she just runs. She disappears. She figures that that is the less painful option. But that is actually the more painful option because Sekuko doesn't have a lot of people in her life that she can talk to about the way she feels because this is her friend from before she meets Takahashi, before she meets Satoru. I think it's more about what Chizuru needed for herself because she was clearly frustrated with men and had figured out something about herself. And I think she was frustrated because she realized that she wanted something from a friend who is also queer, but can't reciprocate the feelings. And she's lonely and looking for someone to receive those feelings too. And without getting into too many personal details, I've been Chizuru in a similar situation and it is not easy to manage your feelings for an arrow ace person who you are extremely close to. So Koisanu Futari, I think it's a very important show. I think it's a show that everybody should watch. If you're arrow ace, if you're allosexual, whatever your place on the spectrum, I think it's really important to watch it because it's about the nature of love and what love means and uh, about thinking about love and relationships, how we treat each other, how we interact with each other, how we decide for our lives what we're going to do and how we're going to be, who is our family, how we become family, all of these things wrapped up 
in a lovely tight eight episodes that will be burning my brain for another five years. I really, really liked it. And I've watched it twice already, and I'll be showing it a third time when I show it to Emily. I'm really glad we took the extra time to talk about 180 Degree and Koisanu Futari, because these are unusual in relation to the rest of the shows that we awarded tonight for the Best in Class Awards. But I hope that those of you who are listening can appreciate our desire to highlight queer narratives beyond the scope of BL or QL, because we finally get to see the kinds of stories that would have been really helpful for a lot of us when we were a lot younger. It's not just Edge of 17, Bent and Get Real, or Beautiful Thing anymore. These two shows are perfection, and that's why we awarded them our special class awards for standout queer narratives of the year. And with that, we wrap up the Vibe Awards for 2022. We have now given out all of our inaugural Vibe Awards. I am lovely and tipsy. Ben, how are you feeling? (laughs) I'm good. I need some more. (laughs) (laughs) Fantastic. So with that, we will be... I won't say closing out our winter series because I think we're going to give you all a little bonus content maybe in a week or so. So look out for that. But with that, we're wrapping up the Vibe Awards and coming to the end of our winter series. We will see you guys again in the spring when we will be talking about some of the shows that we've been watching all winter. Really looking forward to discussing particularly my school president, never let me go and gap. Anything that you really want to discuss when we come together in the spring, Ben? Jojo. I, I want to talk only about Jojo when we come back. I want to talk about the warp effect and the specific queer things that Jojo is doing there. I want to talk about never let me go. And we're definitely by then going to be able to talk about the complete Midnight series. Congratulations to all of the winners of the Vibe Awards, and thank you to everybody who worked so hard to bring all of the shows to air in the last year plus. Even if we didn't mention your show on here, I attempted to watch it, and they were all worth watching. (laughs) (laughs) All right, we out. Say bye to the people, Ben. Peace. Peace.